Hi, everyone. This is Martin Willis. Welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. Today's podcast, number 115, is with Richard Wright on mid-century modern furniture and decorative arts. It's a great show. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. Hi, everyone. I'm with Richard Wright on Skype in Chicago. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing fine. Good morning to you. Good morning, and thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. This is the second time you've been on. Yes. Uh, you were all the way back in the beginnings of this podcast, and I appreciate your willingness to come back. Um, and today we're going to stay on a, or mostly on a topic of mid-century modern, just for our listeners out there who have an interest in that. And uh, so I'm going to just fire some questions at you. Um, Your company's been around for a while, and you've handled, I saw on your website, you've handled over 20,000 objects um, so far. That is true. And uh, encompassing mostly the 20th and 21st century, basically, right? Correct. Yeah. So as far as um, mid-century modern, that's a term you hear all the time today. And what does it actually mean? And what what are the years it it encompasses when it comes to furniture and decorative arts? So mid-century modern is, you know, uh, generally, there's not a strict definition of it, but generally it falls into the category of post-war design. So it begins in 1945. And it sort of runs stylistically to about 1960. After 1960, you start to have other influences in design that sort of move design in a more radical place. So real kind of heroic mid-century modern is 1945 to 1960. So again, you said that it's not really strictly defined because I've seen people sell 1970s items and call it mid-century modern. It's kind of stretching it a little bit in the 70s. Totally. I mean, I think that the concerns of you know the the the, the concerns of design, the design world, coming out of the war, were completely different than the you know much more consumer driven driven culture of the 1970s. Design there, there is a absolute stylistic shift that starts to occur. Probably strictly, we would, we'd start to see that shift show up in the late 50s, 1958, 1959. I'm using 1960 as a nice round number. Um, but, you know, mid-century modern really is, I mean, it's, it, 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 it is a cohesive style visually, um, and that style starts to fragment later on in the, in the uh, century. Now, do you call that the Brady Bunch uh, 70s? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think I, I, I think I would approach it from the higher end, which would be a radicalization of design. Um, you know, it's, uh, but certainly at the mass at the mass uh, culture level, it is that sort of op art, pop art sensibility. I mean, one thing you see in the in the second half of the century is the speed up of consumer culture and the ability of that consumerism to absorb new styles very quickly. And that's something that, that's happening today and is quite fascinating. So the difference, the, the, the amount of time that the avant-garde design moves to the mainstream becomes shorter and shorter. Again, that process is going on today. Mm -hmm. Now, why is uh, the mid-century modern design uh, popular in today's world? 
You know, I think the mid-century modern, at its best, has a sense of, of timelessness about it. I mean, it has a modern sensibility, of course, so it doesn't have the timelessness of, uh, you know, your, your, your grandfather's antiques, but it has a purity of design that, is, that really stands apart from many other works from the century. You know, I think that I often think of this work as being heroic design. The, you know, the, the Second World War had ended, and, you know, design really took upon itself to try to create not just a utopian vision, but, but to try to really take some of the lessons that were learned in the war in terms of new materiality, new manufacturing processes, and bring that to furniture design that would make people's lives better. There was an absolute sense of very lofty goals for the furniture. And, you know, it was, it was also the first time that America led the design world. So I think that there is a, a natural, enduring appeal for American collectors for sort of classic American mid-century design. Now, would, how, how does Frank Lloyd Wright fall into all of this? Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, obviously comes out of the, you know, the, the turn of the century. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, yeah, my... You know, he really is tied into several generations earlier of design. I mean, I think he ties into it in terms of his growth as an architect continuing into the, to, to expand organic design to include things like the Guggenheim Museum and the sort of curvilinear you know, side of organic versus, you know, his earlier prairie style, which was in nature, but was very rectilinear. Um, the decorative arts that are associated with that sort of architecture, his work, uh, you know, Joseph Hoffman, you know, the, the Austrian Viennese school is very separate from concerns about ergonomics, the human form. Um, you know, it, it's sort of perversely points to nature, but it's completely geometric, which is sort of, which is quite an opposition to, to nature. So, you know, I mean, he's, it is, it's really after Frank Lloyd Wright, I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright was never, he never really did mid-century modern, in my opinion. I mean, he did some decorative arts in the 50s, but they were, you know, it, it really just, uh, updating of his of his earlier design works um, he's really just stylistically not part of that movement was his son involved in any mid-century i know his son designed some furniture was he involved in any mid-century furniture i think just purely on a timeline you would say yes but again stylistically i would argue no mm-hmm. I mean, stylistically, he is sort of a, you know, contemporarily quoting his father's work or channeling his father's work. In terms of the, the story of design, I think of that as it's just a little cul-de-sac. It's not part of the larger story of design in the century and sort of the emerging narrative. Um, that's, you know, it, it just... It just it, it isn't. Frank Lloyd Wright certainly is earlier on, um, but but not later in terms of the deck arts, and certainly Lloyd Wright is is not in terms of decorative art mm-hmm. or or architecture. I would argue for Lloyd, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, you can't deny mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I have talked to a few different people around the country about uh, you know what is hot and what is not and i was surprised that there are like pockets in areas that people are really not all that interested 
in the mid-century modern look. Um, would you say that it's mostly concentrated in the big cities where this is popular? Well, I guess, you know, I probably see it a little bit differently. I mean, I do think that it is, it is more of an urban design movement, no doubt. Um, but, you know, we get things from all over the country, and there are pockets of collectors literally all over the country. Um, you know, to your point, the highest, the highest concentration is New York, LA, Miami. Um, but I think that the, the appeal of it, especially to a younger collector, is, um, is, is, is more broad. I tend to see a breakout along generational lines. And I think that, that if you are of, of a certain age, you may have a negative connotation with mid-century and think of it as being um, cheaply manufactured. And, you know, I think sometimes if you've lived through an era, it can feel a little too close to you. You know, I've gone through that experience myself in learning to appreciate 70s and 80s design, which is something that was not innate to me. I didn't live through the 50s, so the, again, my heroic vision of it, the narrative of the design is close enough that I can connect to it, but I have enough distance that I see it a little more purely. Now, speaking of the collector that collects these type of things, what would you say that general demographics are? Well, I mean, the, the demographics are fairly broad. Um, I think that there are, you know, at the high end, um, you know, it tends to actually be a, a little bit of an older client because they have more disposable income. I think at an interest level, it really cuts to very young people, all, you know, all the way through people in their 50s, 60s um, that are sort of doing a second home or empty nesters that are sort of doing something a little more, a um, little less traditional. Um, so it, it's really quite broad. In the, in the demographic, I see a lot of people who have a bias or interest in visual culture. So people that are, you know, in the film industry, in fashion, in the art world. Um, there's a very high concentration of collectors within the uh, modern and contemporary dealers of fine art. I mean, the uh, uh, we have a, a, a pretty good number of some of the, the major contemporary artists tend to like this sort of very visual furniture. Um, so it, it's sort of a natural that people that, that like that visual play are, are drawn to this sort of work. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as your background goes, uh, gaining all this knowledge, what drew you initially to the 20th century and 21st century design in general? You know, I was really drawn to this area of collecting because of the accessibility and affordability of it. You know, I began in this business 26 years ago or something um, in the 80s. Um, and you know, I was right out of college. I had very little money. I was just very captivated by the adventure of it all. And being a visual person, I was drawn to the best-looking, cheapest items I could find. And that was mid-century. Um, at that time, the real challenge was selling it, not getting it. Um, so, you know, it was right. quite a... Yeah, there was a, there was, it was widely available. Um, and so it allowed me to really learn the material um, and to really have been involved in the formation of the market. So the success of my business has been very tied to the fact of, you know, having deep contacts because I was in it 
I say, before there was even a market. So, hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Now, uh, say a popular magazine comes out featuring a certain design. Does that affect the market in any type of way? You know, I think that it does. I mean, I don't know that it's so direct that there's one magazine that has, a, you know, a lot of power, but I, I think that it's it's people should be clear that fashion affects collecting tastes. So the value and desirability of categories of collecting do rise when they're when they seem and feel and are presented as being fashionable. Mm-hmm. This this plays out in the fine art world as well, which I think many people don't want to um, to see, but it clearly plays out in the decorative art world. So, you know, there is a bit of sorting out of what is fashionable and what is iconic and what is important. Those are all sort of different different things. Uh, and, and all those, you know, you start to make choices as a collector. And you can be furnishing, which many people are. You could be furnishing and collecting, or you could be purely collecting and not really using the furniture, um, and we cater to those those broadly those three different audiences. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that this trend of people being interested in mid-century modern? Do you think that's going to be ongoing for a while? I think that the the category of collecting is very durable. I think that its play is in the history of design is you know on, you you can't debate the importance of that era in the history of design. Um, I think that you know the any market is constantly in flux, and I think that the collecting tastes do change. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest about in my company is that we continue to evolve new markets. I believe that we try to lead collecting tastes, and we also follow collecting tastes. You know, we're not in a vacuum. Um, so I'm not selling the exact same product that I sold 12 years ago when I opened. Um, it's a different product mix. I think that the the visual interest of vintage design, historical items, is is incredibly durable. Um, you know, things from the past have a power for us today, and I think that that as the classic modern gets older and older, the power of that continues to increase, and that in many cases, with especially with the important pieces, the value has increased as well. Mm-hmm. Um- I've been a collector of antique boats for a long time, and um, I currently have a just one right now. It's not really an antique. It's a 63. But uh, I also have a brand-new boat, and there's no connection. I don't feel the connection with my new boat <laughs> as I do with my antique boat. And I think there's something to be said about, like, a history of a product and the nostalgia that it brings back when you're uh, when you're living with something. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that you feel the past life of objects, and I th- I think that if you are at all sensitive, you feel the power of certain objects. Um, I know very little about vintage boats, but I can see a beautiful wooden boat on the water, and just it just stands out, and it's you know. Um, so there's there's a visual power, and there to your point, there's also an intangible presence 
Um, you know, one of the things that I worry about with mid-century is the sometimes the over-bias to refinishing things and mm-hmm. because the work's not that old, trying to make it perfect or look new. To me, that's a huge mistake. I like to feel the life accruing on a piece of furniture, you know, well cared for, not abused, but, you know, uh, that's that's what gives it its character, its patina, as we all all, all refer to. Right. Now, when does it, when would you say that it crosses the line when it's like seriously water stained or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, that line is different for every collector. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, there's not a clear answer. I think of things that have been well cared for and show their age as having an attractive patina. If things show evidence of being in someone's basement and abused or, you know, just kind of ignored, yeah, that's that's less interesting visually, um, and sort of adopting the uh, you know the the, the, the abandoned dog. Um, so you know it's it's uh, but there's a lot of gray area in between, and you know it can depend on your interior and you know I I, I get why people want things to be refinished as well. So I, I understand both sides of it. Yes, along sort of along those lines, uh, I always bring up. Uh, fakes in my podcast and is there more of an issue with knockoffs of design than there is with fakes there's been some issues with both i mean certainly there's been a wide number of reproductions and knockoffs of things and that has cut you know that's that's um, really hurt some markets. Mm-hmm. It's and oftentimes it's less the fact that you're confusing the reproduction with the original. Um, it's it's usually if you have any level of expertise, pretty easy to decipher. Ninety, I'll say ninety eight percent of the time. But it has watered down the look um, and watered down the desirability in some markets. Take something like George Nelson clocks. Um, George Nelson clocks. George Nelson was a, one of the, the, the major designers for mid-century for a clock company in Michigan, the Howard Miller Clock Company. His office designed about 150 different clocks in a very you know like five year five year window of time. They're unbelievable in their quirkiness and in their visual sophistication and in their you know it's kind of their exploration of deconstructing the clock there is a very core group of collectors that used to buy i mean the, so the market does still exist but the, the, they used to buy these clocks very passionately Vitra Design Museum started reissuing nearly all of them. It was shocking to what extent they reissued these clocks. And the accessibility of the clocks that looked, you know, from the from the exterior without picking them up, they looked like 95% correct. I mean, it, mm. they were very faithfully done. The value in that market came down 60 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know... It just just hurt things, um, and it made it less interesting because now you see the clocks in gift shops, and you know mm-hmm. they're sort of the 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 desirability of the of the of a of the rare item comes down if it's widely reproduced. Yes, I've seen that happen in many different uh, designs and pieces over the years where. Something is copied, and all of a sudden, it does affect um, the originals 
I don't think I'd really want something you'd find in a gift shop. So right. I totally understand that. What would you consider would be, as far as furniture goes, what's the American holy grail of uh, mid-century modern furniture? Probably the designs done by um, this sculptor, Asama Noguchi. Um, you know, I think you could debate which one of these quirky designs is the holy grail. Um, famous cloud sofa or his famous chess table or, you know, one of his unique custom tables. Um, but his furniture, you know, to me sort of sums up what was going on in America in the post-war because it is incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly optimistic. Um, it's really a fusion of art and design. And it was produced by a major furniture manufacturer to be marketed to the masses. Um, it's so to me, the, the idea that, that a corporate entity saw the possibility of not just good design, but truly challenging great design was amazing. Um, and you know, most of them were commercial flops, but one of the tables that he designed um, has been in constant production. It's a uh, it's a um, a wooden it's a just a coffee table with a glass top on a tripod wooden right. base. Yeah, uh, very very famous table. God knows how many were made and are still being made. Some of the rare tables from Noguchi though are the most valuable and probably the most sought after. There was just a, um, a unique marble table done by Noguchi that turned up um, in Massachusetts, not too far away from you. Um, and it was made in the 1940s. It was fantastic. I competed very hard to try to get the table. I ended up not getting it. It went to Christie's, um, and it sold for $2.5 million. Oh, wow. So, I, I would say that's the holy grail. <laughs> yeah, that's the holy grail. Um <laughs> You know, earlier in my career, in 2005, I had a Noguchi table that was mass-produced. Um, we don't know how many. I mean, mass-produced meaning it was made by Herman Miller. It wasn't made by Noguchi as opposed to the other table. We sold that for $625,000 wow. back then. So, you know, there's a very... Noguchi occupies a very special place. Mm -hmm. Along the same lines, what is the most popular sought-after decorative art? You know, there's probably not one iconic decorative art item, but mid-century modern really was interpreted throughout the range of the decorative arts. In America, there's a very quirky uh, set of lamps that was produced in 1951 um, and, and first shown at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, it was a very interesting time when museums sponsored design competitions, and there's a series of lighting that was produced by Heifetz that comes out of that, out of a 1951 low-cost lighting design competition. Um, there's wonderful metalwork that's done at that time that has the same sort of mid-century exuberance um, done right here in America. And, um, you know, it, it can't fail but mention Italian glass. There's an incredible renaissance of really mid-century style that occurs in, the, in, in, in Italy, in Murano, with sort of a, a, a reawakening of the traditional crafts brought to life by the new visual aesthetics of, of the post-war era. Mm -hmm. Now, who would you say your sellers are for the most part? Is it the baby boomers? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, well, it's, it's, 
the, the, the collecting category has be starting to become mature enough that, that it's a mixture of things coming out of original homes and things becoming um, recycled from collectors. So we're starting to see the beginning of, of significant collections coming back onto the market. Um, you know, we're, of course, always excited to get the call or more likely the email of, you know, somebody's estate. Um, sounds morbid, but auctions are, you know, we, we always talk about the three Ds. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, debt, divorce, and death are the drivers of, of many of the property that comes to market. So what's exciting about this area of collecting, things are still coming fresh to the market. You know, I think that, that collecting categories get stale when there's not new material. So, you know, I just told you the story about the Noguchi table that just sold this spring. That would have been, the, you know, I'm, I'm going to cry talking about it, but it would have been the finest piece that I would have, have handled in my career. So I've done this, you know, 26 years. It's exciting for me to think that those big fish are still out there in the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what is great about, um, you know, that area and, and, and honestly about what I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I wish you got that. I know what it's like to lose a really good piece. <laughs> it's, <laughs> not, it's not fun. Uh, you just give it your best shot. And, and um, you know, when you're competing against a major auction house like that, it's tough. It's tough when you get to, you know, I think what's interesting for me is the rise in valuations on the pieces. You know, um, I learned a lot competing for that table and to lose a million dollar plus piece to an international auction house based in New York City is not so hard. Um, uh, you know, the fact that I felt really... Sotheby's was taken out fairly early. It really came down between me and Christie's, you know, to be able to even be in the running for a piece at that level. I felt very proud. Um, you know, it's also fascinating to me to be contemplating, you know, seven figure prices for decorative art items that, you know, I started in this business as a dealer with $2,000. So it's come a long way in the, uh, in, in, in the years I've been involved. Mm-hmm. You've done a wonderful job. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, what, it, as far as mid-century uh, in general, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in starting to collect? You know, I mean, I think the the number one thing for anybody beginning to collect is to do your homework. I think that the more you learn about the period, the more you'll appreciate the work and the more pleasure you'll get from it. Um, you know, it's also, there are lots of different levels you can collect at, but it is, as we've been discussing, you can spend a lot of money. You certainly don't need to spend millions, but you can spend significant amounts buying this furniture now. You can also buy it at, at a lower level that's very valid, but you need to understand the differences between that. You don't want to overpay, um, for items, and, and I think you also don't want to undercollect if you are going to actually be living with these things over years. Sometimes the, the less expensive item or the more common item will end up yielding less pleasure. You'll get tired of it sooner. I've, I've seen that in my own collecting. Um, so get, getting, getting educated is, is the best, best place to start. 
the good news is there's just a ton of information now, um, which was so different than when I started. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the auction houses, you know, are a great place to start. Uh, we all keep our sales online. Everything I've ever sold is archived on my website. You can search and, you know, see great photos, great, you know, write-ups and see price points. Um, and, you know, there are still, there are good dealers. I mean, you know, people want to talk about, we like sharing our information about this period. So ask questions and, you know, and there's a, there's a ton of books. So you go out and you buy the books and you do your research and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a fun journey. Uh, along those lines, if someone contacts you, do you give um, any free advice or? Free? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, most of our days are spent responding. Again, most of it now is through email, um, but we're happy to give free auction estimates um, to anybody. I mean, that's that that's what we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned your website. What is that website address? It is right20.com. So my name, W-R-I-G-H-T-2-0 dot com. Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about your company in a minute here, but uh, let's just talk quickly about the contemporary market because I know you're really heavily involved in that. And are you basically forming those markets? Um, you talked a little bit about that earlier. You know, I, in some ways, yes. I mean, I don't like to say that I'm forming the markets, so it's it's hard to know where that line begins and ends. I mean, we're trying to bring fresh things to the market. If the market responds, we'll do more of it. Mm. Um, you know, it goes both ways. I think of it more as exploring the world of design than trying to, you know, per se, build a market. Building a market is a multi-pronged process, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not controlled by anyone, a dealer, an auction house, the press, um, you know, all those things, the collectors, all those things come together, museums, it's all part of a dialogue. But I think that we're all watching each other and looking at what is new and different and, you know, how can we, how can we put that out there and, you know, and broaden the story that we're telling. Mm-hmm. Do you go to Europe and places like that looking at different, you know, contemporary designs? Sure. I mean, you know, um, it's, you know, I just came back from Germany and Sweden. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I will point out contemporary, you know, is, is, can be a little bit of a fuzzy category as well, depending, you know, what date you want to begin the, you know, the contemporary movement. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're doing less with brand new, absolutely contemporary pieces. We've commissioned pieces in the past. We had a contemporary design program. It's been a very challenging part of the market. Um, so, you know, we're honestly doing less of that, but we still do a lot of, you know, things that were made within the last 20 years. So that's, by many definitions, contemporary as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very interested in the curatorial reevaluation of very recent periods. Um, you know, we're doing a lot right now with postmodern design, which is 80s. You know, trying to suss out what is the historical important pieces from the 90s and the turn of the 21st century, you know, something that really interests me 
it's it's hard work and it's not you know it's not always clear so in that sense you know i I do travel. I've been to the Milan Furniture Fair a couple of times. Um, I certainly keep my eye on museums and have, you know, watch the shows and have have conversations with the curators um, to understand what's the best design being produced today. I see more and more the auction house venue is really best suited to secondary market. So when do things enter the secondary market? And I'm stepping back from the primary market myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, talking a little bit about your company, one thing I noticed oh, of, uh, a number of years ago when I first came across your website is your beautiful photography. And uh, I bet that plays a part in uh, the success of your company. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, our company... The, the, the early success of our company was largely built around our print catalogs and photography was a huge component of that, of course. We maintain a very high level of design. We sell design. So graphic design has always been a huge part of our, our brand. Um, you know, in the, the very first auction years, I art directed every single photograph. Mm. Um, if we go, if you were to ever see my first catalog, you know, there's little, I tried to prop things with, you know, uh, little starfishes and different little touches. And, um, I shot things out in location very early on. You know, we shot on a traditional photo sweep. We shot in interiors. We shot outside. We did a whole host of, you know, sort of art directed shots. We've done innumerable different styles. Um, you know, we've also, we've also done an incredible amount of investment to maintain the quality of our photographs. And it's been such a learning curve for me to collaborate with great photographers, to try to communicate my visual interpretation of the objects which I think that, that I have the most information on. And then just watching the world uh, the photographic world change. You know, we opened in 2000, we shot film mm. and Polaroids, and now, of course, everything is digital. And the amount of post-production time spent on photographs is amazing. Um, we had no post-production originally, of course, on film, or very little. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, every single every single shot is is um, outlined, color-corrected, you know, Photoshop work is done. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have an incredible commitment to the visual quality of our photographs. We have, we, we don't know, I don't even know the count. I mean, we take multiple shots of every piece. So we have an image archive of, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 images at this point. Um, and it's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And, you know, I said the print catalog still continues to be one of our signatures, you know, as our strong graphic style is a signature. Um, but I'm, I'm more and more excited about developing our website. And, you know, we've already are doing things on the web that no other auction house has 
doing, and we're going to continue to try to build more into that because there's so much that the web can do to be able to allow you to take the deep dive to have just unlimited content about some of these rare historical pieces that we're handling and to keep that archived up there forever is, is just, you know, and it's free. I'm really proud of doing that, doing that in a visually exciting way and, you know, kind of putting that out there to share. Now, when you're speaking of what you're doing with your website, is it just what you just mentioned or are you doing some other things as well? We're doing some other things. I mean, this fall we'll be launching um, uh, what we're calling uh, additional content. And we're trying to work in a very visual way. Right now, if you were to preview one of our auctions, the new auctions, this doesn't work for the old ones, but the, the, the ones from the spring, you'll see that the objects are presented in, in a full bleed window, a very visual window that has no border on it. And soon the information will, the, I, I use the metaphor of the deep dive, you'll be able to, if you're interested in that item, scroll down. And the more you scroll down, the deeper you will get into um, the history of the item. If, you know, if, if we have information to share, we'll tell you where the item came from, its provenance. We'll try to show you how it's signed. We'll link in images of all the labels and all the marks. We'll send you to links for biographies on the artist. We'll be able to show you past sales results for similar items. Um, those sort of things we'll, we'll, we'll try to put in images of advertising period photos um, where it's documented in the literature, visually showing you that. Um, you know, really trying to build that in for nearly every item. I have two full-time researchers now. Um, I have two photographers. I have two graphic designers. I have a full-time photo retoucher, a full-time web person. You know, it's an investment. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel excited about, you know, creating that experience for the user. Um, you know, I hope that there's a good business sense on the other end of it. But I got to tell you, it's really driven by the passion of, you know, can we really document fully all these items that go through our hands? That's a, that's a great gift. Wow, that's wonderful. So your website is an amazing resource for anyone that's listening to this to uh, understand exactly this whole uh, 20th and 21st century in the decorative arts. That's wonderful. Um, that's great. And uh, just one more question. Can you tell of the listener audience how many auctions you run a year and the separate categories? Sure. Um, we have a somewhat flexible schedule. We're right now generally doing nine to ten auctions a year. Each season is formed, so the spring and the fall season, each one is anchored by the important design sale that comes in June and December of every year. Um, that's where we, we sort of save up the most expensive and sort of heavyweight pieces. We sort of define that as $10,000 and above. Um, each season we do a mid-season sale, which we call the modern design sale. Um, that's you know, a mixture of some expensive items, but a lot more of the accessible material. Um, and we'd evolve different themes for the, for the mid-season sale. And we do a lot of our American design in the mid-season. Um, so that, that, that occurs every March and October. 
We are now doing two Scandinavian design auctions. We're the only auction house in America to do um, a dedicated Scandinavian design sale in America. We do one in May and November. Then we do a mix of fine art and decorative art um, once a season. We call that living contemporary. And, you know, because we're out there, we get offered some really great art, not so much that we can, that we do that we can do a standalone fine art program. So we sort of braid the two together, and we do more of a, a decorative look to the furniture, and we mix it with um, you know artwork that 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 we've re, that we've sourced. So we have one of those um, in September. We do uh, so we'll do April and September for that. We do once a year our we just had one our beloved mass modern sale which is our no reserve in-house i do say i call it our junk sale but it, it is our um it's really our accessible sale where we'll take you know we sold boy we sold a bunch of great stuff for 50 and 100 and 200 dollars mm-hmm. um you know i i like doing that sale because it brings in new collectors local audience loves it and i always want to point to the fact that while I talk a lot about the expensive material, there's still some great values in this field and there's great values in the vintage world in general. And it's just, it's a great jumping in point for, for people. Wow, that's um, great. And then finally, you know, we're always looking for the special project auction. You know, my real passion is to be able to green light a project that I want to do, do it very quickly. Um, this spring, we were offered a single owner collection of Italian glass. So we did a beautiful standalone catalog and presented 150 pieces of Italian glass. Mm. Um, in the, in December, we have a single owner collection of Italian design. Um, I went over to Milan through a, through a dealer, um, helped, uh, you know, uh, win a consignment. Um, it's about a million dollars worth of items from one collector in Milan. Um, he felt the, the best market was here in America. We beat out some other auction houses and we'll present that as a, again, as a separate catalog in December. We've done, you know, standalone auctions of Bertoya, single owner sales. We did a Circus 70. You know, we do all kinds of different ideas. Um, so we always have, uh, we want to always have the flexibility in our schedule to do something like that. Uh, Annie, who works with you, uh, contacted me, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to her. And I'm really happy that uh, she said you'd be willing to come back on again. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's really, it's been fun. All right. So this is Martin Willis with Richard Wright. And we're signing off. So that was our show with our great guest, Richard Wright. His website is linked just below this podcast on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can like us on Facebook, and those icons are right on our website. We are looking for someone to help transcribe our podcasts so we can have them as show notes. And this is a paying gig, so if you listen to our podcast and you can type fast, you can actually make some money listening to our shows. I hope you enjoyed today's program. We really appreciate you listening. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at 
worthpoint.com.